Today on Maine Calling, the future of the seafood economy. Seafood is a huge part of Maine's economy and not just the lobster fishery. It's estimated that seafood harvesting and related businesses contribute more than $3 billion to the Maine economy every year. It is also a huge part of Maine's culture and heritage. But the seafood sector faces major challenges, from fuel costs to warming waters. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we talk with the authors of a new initiative about how to sustain and grow Maine's seafood economy in the future. A big part of the project, innovation, using research and creativity to find new products and markets. And not all of those products will end up on the dinner table. What might be in the crystal ball for seafood in Maine? Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. The future direction of Maine's seafood industry will be the big topic at the annual Fisherman's Forum this week. Today, we'll learn how Maine's seafood economy is meeting challenges with innovative approaches. Joining me for the hour, Kurt Brown, who is a marine biologist with Ready Seafood, a lobsterman, and co-chair of Sea Maine, which we'll learn more about. He's also chairman of the Alliance for Maine's Marine Economy. And Dr. Gail Zedleski is an oceanographer and director of the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine. We invite you to join the conversation. Send us an email talk at mainepublic.org, post a comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. Thank you both for joining us today. I know the Fisherman's Forum is a really big and important event coming, um, coming up starting this afternoon, tomorrow. 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 Okay. Well, Kurt, let me start with you. The Maine Development Foundation estimates that seafood brings in more than $3 billion a year to the Maine economy. What does that number encompass? Lobster, of course, but what else? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is an economic driver, not just of the coast, but of the entire state. And as we all know, and I love to say, people don't come to Maine to eat chicken. So when we talk about the seafood economy in Maine, we're talking about everything from wild caught fisheries like lobsters and scallops and monkfish and haddock and cod, crabs, rockweed, flatfish, and amazing aquaculture opportunities like oysters and mussels and kelp. And as we'll learn more about later on, eels and all of these opportunities are coming from the cold, clean, rocky shores of Maine. And Maine is just so well positioned to grow and add value to all of these amazing resources. And that's what's really wonderful about the Fisherman's Forum coming up is that it brings everybody together from all up and down Maine's coast and all of these different industries to talk about these important issues and how we continue to grow uh, the value of our marine economy overall. It's really a driver, like I said, and it's very important that we continue to grow as industries by working together. 
Okay, so you're a co-chair of something called C Maine. Tell me about that initiative and uh, the roadmap you're, you're going to debut at the Fisherman's Forum. That's a great question. So C Maine started back way back in like 2018, 2019. And um, it was an initiative that was pulled together really to strengthen Maine's marine economy overall. Rising tide, float all boats. That was really the idea behind it. And it's been an amazing initiative over the last five years that has brought together all of those different industries that I mentioned before. I mean, how can lobster businesses work with oyster businesses? How can groundfish operations or organizations like the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association add value to the species that they're dealing with. I mean, they've out of this and over time developed this amazing monkfish stew that you can grab at your local Hannaford or Sopo seafood or, um, or uh, oh, Harbor fish market and just amazing, amazing value add stuff. Value add doesn't have to be complicated, but it can be, but this project overall has brought all of these different industries together that typically exist in their own silos and brought all of that brain power together and all pulling in the same direction. And it's really an amazing project that I've been humbled to be a part of. And I'm really excited to roll out the roadmap uh, Friday, Friday morning. Gail, one of the reasons, of course, we're talking about innovations is because the seafood economy faces so many challenges. Uh, just today, a new report about just how warm the Atlantic Ocean was this past year. So if you could talk about some of the many challenges facing uh, fishermen and other people who depend on the ocean for their livelihood. Thanks, Jennifer, and thanks for having me here. Um, you, you know, there's so many elements to that question uh, that we could dig into, but for certainly seeing the warming climate in the Gulf of Maine and the changing waters is something that we, the Maine Sea Grant Program, um, has been really paying close attention to. Um, our focus areas range from the importance of those coastal ecosystems to how that affects communities and economies, and also thinking about how the, the warming water affects resources, for example, the, the lobster resource, um, what's happening to those populations as water is, is warming. Um, and certainly thinking about um, what that means to being able to harvest and take and um, use those resources economically and sustainably into the future um, um, among all different partners. Mm -hmm. So, but it's not just the warming ocean. We're also looking at fuel costs and bait costs and, uh, you know, fill in the, the, the sentence there. Right. So there is a great example. You brought up bait. Um, so there's all kinds of considerations in terms of thinking about what, you know, what bait can be used as they're shifting, um, shifting species in various different areas and what can be available for, um, for, for instance, the lobster industry in that space. And that's something that we, um, the Sea Grant program has been thinking about in terms of funding innovations and thinking about what bait could be used in various different spaces as the, these things are changing over time. So the funding that um, Sea Grant brings to the table, we're a federal state partnership with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and funds that we have to help kind of feed into this innovation around things from bait to products that could be used, by products out of different um, fisheries through um, the supply chain, for example, are start from small um, projects that can be funded on the ground in terms of somebody's first ideas and thinking about what can I do in this space 
to larger ideas that can be um, adapted across the entire entire region. And during this hour, we're going to hear from some of the businesses that are using seafood products to, um, um, you know, bring this economy into the future. So I don't want to sort of give it all away. But uh, Kurt, if you can talk about not everything we're talking about is going to end up as something on our dinner table, right? We're talking about all kinds of products. Absolutely. And that's what I really get excited about. Um, at our lobster processing plant in Saco, when I give folks tours through that plant, I always emphasize that I want our lobster shells to be the most valuable item coming out of our plant within 10 years. And that's not a joke. In that shell matrix are all these valuable components that can be used for a variety of different um items and uses. I mean, when you're talking about chitin and chitazan from lobster shells and Patrick Arnold over at the Ocean Cluster really emphasizes this all the time, those are such useful materials. Uh, chitin and chitazan are antibacterial and can be used in products like we'll hear about in a little bit. Uh, lobster shells and the chitin and chitazan can be a biopesticide. They can be a biofertilizer and help buffer against the acidic soils here in Maine. Collaboration is a key part of this. And one of our favorite collaborators is Dr. Zileski and the University of Maine. They have been an amazing partner for industry to fill in those knowledge gaps. And we've worked on so many projects, including a project with the University of Maine, looking at how we can utilize lobster shells to improve disease resistance in potatoes in Aroostook County. I mean, you don't have a more main project than that. It's a win-win taking a byproduct and then utilizing it to improve disease resistance for potatoes up in Aroostook County. Um, probably one of the most exciting projects we're working on right now is another collaboration with a team down at the University of Maryland. They started a company called WH Power out of the University of Maryland, and they're developing zinc-based batteries, believe it or not, for grid storage using the chitin and chitazan from lobster shells. So value add can be anything from a new item that ends up on a plate, like you said, to uh, potato fields in Aroostook County, to zinc, on, zinc ion batteries for grid storage. There's really so many uses for all of these products. And as you can tell, I get pretty excited about it. <laughs> Gail, um, Kurt has been focusing mainly on what lobster shells have in them, but uh, seaweed has a lot of amazing properties too. That's really a, an area of huge innovation and growth. Yeah, certainly. And I guess one of the thing, one of the projects we're working on with Kurt and others is around marine debris. So, and this whole circle of ideas of taking um, the chitin from lobster to actually create prototype products to replace plastic so that they don't end up back in the ocean. So it's kind of this full circle. How do we use products to not have plastics in the ocean? Um, and another example from that is using kelp. So one of the things that pro the um, the actual coatings that that kelp offer in the cellulose nanofiber is to provide a coating to a, as a grease barrier to plastics. So when you think about plastic wrap, um, the folks in our Department of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering at the University of Maine are actually using kelp to try to create plastics that can be used uh, for grease resistance and kind of like your standard plastic wrap instead of using actual plastic. And that results in plastics that can be biodegradable um, like kelp in the natural environment. Fascinating. Kurt, you look like you wanted to jump in there. 
No, I always just shake my head because everything Gail says gets, like I said before, gets me really excited. We love working with the university. They have the Advanced Composites and Structures Center where we're working on uh, learning more about titan, titan, cellulose, all those abundant polysaccharides. But people in our industry don't don't know the chemics and the physics behind. How do you turn that into a bioplastic like Dr. Zudleski was talking about? we would love to be able to derive bioplastics from our lobster shells and reduce the amount of plastic that we're putting into the environment. All of those types of collaborations and communication would never happen without groups like CMAIN bringing all these folks from all these different backgrounds together and talking these ideas through. So absolutely, everything Dr. Zedleski just said is just spot on. Well, calling in now is Patrick Breeding, who is a biomedical engineer and founder and CEO of Barin Skin Care. Thanks so much for calling us, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, it's it's perfect with, with the conversation that's going on. And I'll, I'll push back on Kurt and say, potatoes and lobster, we make lobster skincare products for chapped lips. I'd like to compete for the most main lobster skincare brand that's not seafood. <laughs> so so explain that so this is for chapped lips uh tell us about your product how how it came about and and who your client is just t- tell us all about Absolutely. it so amber and i are co-founders of marin um we're bioengineers at humane we were biomedical engineering grad students we were just looking for ways to help people and create tools or diagnostics or solutions that do good for the world. And we teamed up with Dr. Bob Baer, who was an iconic lobster researcher up there um, at the Lobster Institute at UMaine, very clicked in with Maine Sea Grant. And he was researching this glycoprotein that's actually not in the shell, but in their hemolymph, so their circulatory fluid and how in the same way it it plays a big part in allowing lobsters to fight off disease, heal wounds, and even regenerate limbs, what types of applications in the biomedical space can it have? For us, it was very personal and very particularly useful at the time because my partner Amber had been struggling with really terrible eczema, dry, red, itchy skin all over her body, and nothing worked. We tried the steroids, we tried the moisturizers, nothing worked. And when we started researching this protein, we saw how, okay, this, in the same way it does this in the lobster, it can help regenerate and repair this layer of the skin barrier, this skin cell in the skin barrier. It helps naturally retain moisture. It helps mitigate the, the um, instance of inflammation. And so, budding from that research that Bob had been doing, uh, he made a, a prototype topical cream and gave it to Amber so it was very reverse in an N of 1, but we tried it. And after years of her looking for something, it actually cleared her eczema within two weeks. So we leveraged um, uh, companies and organizations like Maine Technology Institute, Maine Sea Grant, Greenlight Maine, to get some grant funding to put in our first purchase order, build a brand, manufacture a product, do the regulatory studies to get to market. And in 2020, we launched what's now called the Lobster Lotion. Uh, face, hands, and body all-in-one cream that's really good for dry, damaged, irritated skin, and it has blown up like crazy. I mentioned the chap lips part because uh, last year we were able to launch our second product, which was a lip treatment. It's like a, a more clinically effective gloss, but a more indulgent um, you know, lip balm. So uh, the growth has been really exciting, but I think for, for this conversation, 
What's really cool is we are able to take this protein now as we built the company and derive it as a waste byproduct of existing lobster processing. So the lobster's circulatory fluid goes right down the drain. And we partnered with Luke's Lobster. Everyone knows them. Incredibly um, ethical and sustainable and transparent um, lobster company. And take what's going down the drain in their facility. We built our own lab in-house as scientists and are able to purify this to turn what once went down the drain, this kind of lobster goop, into a high-value, highly life-impacting ingredient for all types of skin concerns. Super cool, Patrick. Um, where are you based? We're based in Portland, um, and we work with Luke's processing plant down in Saco. Wow. And Kurt, Kurt is just dying to jump in. Kurt, go ahead. You're absolutely <laughs> right, Patrick. That's the ultimate main story right there. And I love your product, Marin, M-A-R-I-N. If people are wondering, my seven-year-old daughter, like everyone here in Maine during the winter, gets dry skin. And I can't tell you, I can tell you, we haven't found a product that works better than uh, your lotion. It's truly amazing. So thanks for coming on and thanks for everything you do. Pa Patrick, what do you think the um, potential is for other companies like yours to, uh, w that are finding creative ways to um, bolster Maine's seafood economy and, and innovative uses? I think that the, the game is to find meaningfully unique value propositions for everything going down the drain. So for us, it, it, it has worked because we paired a large amount of a naturally abundant resource, so, so the supply is there, with a huge consumer problem. And I think that that's how we as an industry and entrepreneurs should be thinking about how to make use of this waste. It's one thing to turn something that's useful into a one-to-one -one value exchange, and there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of profitability involved. There's not a lot of scale involved. But if we could take these things, like Kurt's saying, let's purify the chitosan from the shell. Let's find these high-value textile, material science, biomedical applications, whatever it is, and figure out how to turn what's going down the drain in pennies into dollars because we're solving big problems at, at scale and we can we can provide the supply chain behind it i think the opportunity is massive we just need to find the right product market fit great well patrick thank you so much for calling in good luck to you patrick breeding founded marin skin care we're going to take a break this is main calling we'll be right back Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today's topic is the future of Maine seafood economy and especially innovative approaches and research going on. With me, Dr. Gail Zidleski, who is director of the Maine Sea Grant Program at UMaine, and Kurt Brown, marine biologist with Ready Seafood and co-chair of Sea Maine and a commercial lobsterman. You can share your comments and questions by email talk at mainpublic.org comment on facebook or instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-36 excuse me 1-800-399-3566 joining us now is dr jem girai who is ceo of salmonics uh jem thanks for calling in did i pronounce it right you sure did <laughs> thanks for including <laughs> me hello everyone Salmonics is somewhat similar to Marin skincare in that you are taking discarded seafood parts to create something new. Tell us what you do. Sure. Uh, so during uh, um, salmon harvest, uh, the blood has to be released from the fish in order to preserve meat quality. And this blood, which amounts to you know several million gallons globally annually, um, is 
life largely treated as waste, <clears throat> and it's usually at a cost to the companies. Uh, so what Salmonics does is we utilize technology that's been developed by another main research and development company, C-Run Holdings, for over uh, a 20-year period uh, with regards to looking at what kind of products can be developed from salmon blood. And with that technology, um, we're looking at collecting the blood before it becomes waste and upcycling it into biomedical products for use in the veterinary and human health sectors. Um, At the same time, we're providing a value-added return to the aquaculture companies that we partner with in terms of an added revenue per fish, uh, which kind of helps their bottom line as well and thus supporting sustainable aquaculture. How did you figure this out? <laughs> well, life is serendipity. Um, I, I worked in actually aquatic animal health for over 20 years uh, for another main company called Kennebec River Biosciences. And it was um, through there that I had introductions to um, aquaculture waste and in terms of um, thinking about what can be done with this. Um, and uh, when Ciron Holdings uh, came to a point where they needed to um, uh, to move along, uh, kind of look at selling the company, uh, they offered uh, to sell to me and to see if I would take the torch and uh, commercialize products that they had developed and utilize patents and trademarks that they had put together um, and uh, see if I can add more products and bring this to fruition. Well, uh, last question for you, Dr. Girai, is this, um, do you think Maine is a good place for companies like yours? It is. Um, I've been in Maine for a long time. I came originally in 1980 as an international student to the University of Maine. And uh, I've gone back and forth between my home, which is in Cyprus, and here over the years, um, doing work overseas. But every time I came back to Maine, just because of the love I have for the nature, the people, the environment, um, and starting this business, I found that there was a lot of help provided by a variety of organizations like Maine Technology Institute, Maine International Trade Center, Maine Central for Entrepreneurs, uh, a lot of them, as well as individuals who are either retired or looking to assist companies that were doing something innovative uh, in Maine. Uh, so there was no lack of, of guidance, and it's really helped us um, make really big strides in a short amount of time. Wow. Well, thank you so much for calling in, Dr. Jem Girai, CEO of Salmonics. Uh, let's see. Susan from the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association is calling in. Hi, Susan. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Susan Alcott. I'm the Director of Operations for Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. Um, and thank you to Kurt for putting in a plug-in for our monkfish stew. Much appreciated. And to our colleagues and partners at Sea Maine. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to provide a couple more specifics about what we're working on. Um, I mean, we see so much opportunity out there to grow seafood markets in Maine. There are abundant ground fish and scallop resources out there that could be better utilized to provide healthy protein to more Mainers. Um, through our Fishermen Feeding Mainers Fish Donation Program, we've been able to donate more than a million meals and 15,000 pounds of fish to people at Maine schools and food banks who wouldn't otherwise have access to fish, and that's helped stabilize the market for the fishermen. 
Um, and then on the consumer end, the monkfish stew has been a fun way to introduce people to monkfish, which is a little bit scary looking, but delicious. And we've seen, you know, people buying monkfish at seafood markets and restaurants offering it, which is really exciting. Um, and it just qualified under the Department of Education's local food fund, um, which means that schools can now purchase it as, at a discount, which is something we're super excited about. It's the first value-added seafood product to qualify, um, and kids love it. We've sampled it with kids, and it's been really popular and is an easy thing for school nutrition staff to, to use. Um, and then we just launched a smoked main Pollock dip, which, you know, often people think of Pollock as bait, but... You smoke it and put it in a dip, and it's fancy and delicious. And this is a great partnership um, with Dunstan Smokehouse, which is another great local business that um, that we've really enjoyed working with. Who is trying to do um, what they can, you know, to to celebrate Maine seafood and is growing well, their business. And Susan, thank you so much for calling in and sharing some of these. And of course, it's getting close to lunchtime. So uh, it's all sounding very <laughs> delicious. Uh, Susan calling in with the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. We're going to move on now. Uh, we're going to go to Sarah Rademacher, who's CEO and founder of American Unagi. She is co-chair with Kurt of Sea Maine. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Hey, Jennifer. Glad to be here. You know, for years and years and years, we've covered the Elver industry in Maine, where Elvers were shipped across the world to be raised. Uh, You're changing that, right? Absolutely. We are keeping some of those Elvers here right on our Maine coast to be grown out locally in land-based aquaculture systems. Um, And your company is a prime example of leading-edge approaches to aquaculture. How did you decide to do this? Yeah, no, that's a a really great question. I actually came from the aquaculture industry, had a a career in it before I came to Maine and wanted to live here, wanted to build a business and started looking around at fish that I could grow in land-based aquaculture facilities. And when I saw what was happening with the glacial fishery um, and seeing that resource shipped all overseas, they're growing them out there, we're buying them back to serve our sushi industry. I ask a question that I think a lot of people were starting to ask, why can't we grow these deals out locally? And that um, that started me building American Unagi about 10 years ago. Do you think there are other marine species that you feel as though could be successfully farmed here that we're not really focused on yet? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the really cool things with the aquaculture industry is there's a lot of innovation happening, a lot of research that's happening with new species, um, learning about new species. But there's also some that have been grown in aquaculture um, for a long, long period of time. Uh, Things like salmon, oysters, mussels, uh, scallops is a new exciting one that we're seeing on the coast. So there um, there's species that have been done for a long time, and there are constantly um, companies that are looking at new new species we can grow. Well, I really appreciate you calling in. Sarah Rademacher is the founder of American Unagi, also co-chairs C. Maine. Gail. Thanks, Jennifer, and thanks, Sarah. That was great. It was great to hear you. I know that we had funded an early, early, early part of Sarah's work, so it's so exciting to see where she is now. Um, and just, I just want to mention those. It's like these small proof of concept projects that we get to fund that are just really cool to see um, really come into um, 
their space. So including Sarah's work and um, also Patrick's work, we had were able to fund a little bit of their um, of the startups in, in their um, two businesses. I guess I'll also just kind of reflect on Susan. I'm glad she called in from Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. Sea Grant, we were able to partner with them on their Fishermen Feeding Mainers program, which was super exciting. And just wanted to point out, we also worked with them to develop recipe cards for people in different languages so that the seafood industry could reach those um, uh, folks who might want to um, access different um, recipes and parts of the seafood industry that we might not re be able to reach out to otherwise. So it's exciting to work with them in that space as well. We're going to go to Jesse, who's calling from Booth Bay Harbor. Hi, Jesse, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm actually in the process of collecting green crab that I've been uh, getting in traps here, and they're going on to the fishing forum this weekend and partnered with greencrab.org. And I believe it's going to be used in a broth recipe, but we're currently developing markets for it. And um, not just for food, also fertilizers and compost. Uh, there's a liquid fertilizer that I'm looking into that could help with organic farms, especially along the coast where there are fertilizer regulations. And it's uh, safe to, that would go into groundwater and, you know, into bodies of water. So, yeah, it's something we're developing and uh, trying to make into a market and hopefully one day a dock price for the boats. Jesse, uh, we have so much interest in green crabs. Uh, here's an email from David. Is there some innovative way to commercialize green crabs, which are so devastating to main shellfish? Some kind of product like that being developed from lobster shells or lobster bait. So your answer is yes, yes, you hope so and more, right? Yes, I mean, we're. It's all, this is a very early stage thing, but there are grants that are coming and uh, there's definitely a lot more public interest now that we're aware of what they're doing, uh, especially to eelgrass and some of the habitats for young spawning creatures around here. And the blue crab are also uh, becoming a thing, and it turns out, well, they're delicious. So uh, a recreational fishery for those, and, and you know, there, there's plenty of ways that we can take these invasive species and turn it into, turn it into a positive thing. And, uh, and, and increase what we're doing on the working waterfront. And hopefully green crab is going to be incorporated into that. Gail. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so we've been funding some green crab research for a while too. And so it's exciting to see many folks being involved and thinking about what products it could be. Actually, New Hampshire Sea Grant recently worked with some folks to develop, I can't remember if it's a whiskey or a bourbon uh, made from green crab. So that's exciting. Um, and we've been working with some of the school um, food sciences folks here at UMaine who have been doing some product development around uh, fish sauces made from green crab. So we're constantly uh, working with folks to think about what are the new and innovative ways to use green crabs for sure. Kurt, when you um, are out in, I was going to say out in the field, when you're out on the water, how many green crabs do you encounter? I know I've set a trap too shallow when it comes up full of green crabs, but they certainly are abundant in the inner title and more and more in the subtitle. And the more work on that species, the better. And I know a lot of work has been done, but whoever figures that out, whether it's a culinary aspect or a fertilizer aspect or, or many different things is going to do very well. And it's just that innovation, that collaboration. I mean, the theme throughout this entire call so far just is so clear is collaboration. 
Um, and there's so many amazing collaborations we've heard about. Humane is a common theme there. I mean, on the culinary side of things, Chef Rob Dumas up there at the University of Maine has helped us develop some innovative uh, lobster products and would be a great contact for you, Jesse, if you haven't made it already. Um, but if you're at the Fisherman's Forum this weekend, come find me and we can make that connection. Uh, Sarah, who called in, she's an absolute rock star. I mean, what she is doing with eels has never been done before anywhere in the world. I mean, tying that whole life cycle together and that's happening right here in Maine. And it's just amazing to hear and being able to co-chair a product, pro a project, see Maine with her has just been really humbling and exciting. But what I picked up on through this whole call is just collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> Jesse, thanks so much for your call. And uh, Marfine, I believe has a related call. Hi, Marfine, go ahead. Hi, yeah, I'll, I'll echo what the, your previous caller said, collaboration. Um, in my role as president of Khmer Maine, which serves the Cambodian community, we've been working closely with Tay Chong at the Maine Chamber of Commerce. And he's connected us to greencrabs.org. There's actually a Maine public segment on um, that. I think that was done by Ari Snyder. Um, but green crabs is, is similar to crabs in, in Cambodia. In Cambodia, um, our cuisine differs slightly from Vietnamese and Thai cuisine in, in, in that it uh, utilizes a lot of seafood. And so we're actually working with Tay Chong and, and the Maine Chamber of Commerce to explore tilapia, green crabs. Uh, and personally, I'm, I'm interested in um, the fish sauce uh, idea because fish, fish sauce and crab paste is a huge staple in Cambodian cuisine. Great. Well, Marfine, thanks so much for calling in. If you would like to call in and Add your voice to this conversation, our phone number 1-800-399-3566. You can send an email to talk at mainpublic.org or post to Facebook or Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling. Today we are learning about some of what's in store for the future of Maine's seafood economy and some of the interesting, creative, innovative things going on. Kurt Brown is with us. He's a biologist and lobsterman. And Dr. Gail Zidleski is ocean scientist with the Maine Sea Grant Program. You can join our conversation at 1-800-399-3566. If you're quick, you can send us a brief email, talk at mainepublic.org or post to Instagram or Facebook. Calling us now, though, Nikki Strout, who is owner and founder of Rugged Seas. Nikki, thanks so much for calling in. Hey, how are you? Thanks for thinking of us. I understand your husband is a lifelong fisherman, and that prompted the idea for using fishermen's bibs to make products. Tell us about them. Exactly. So my husband grew up um, lobstering in Portland, and now he's a fisherman in Dutch Harbor in Alaska. And so he, I'll give him the credit, came up with the idea to try to recycle fishermen's bibs, the orange overalls that you see fishermen wearing every day. And we've been able to find a way to utilize that material. And we make tote bags, clutches, backpacks, and we have a full line of wearables, um, hoodies and sweatpants and things like that. And Nikki, um, I understand the business has just taken off. It's been an amazing reaction to what we're trying to do. And really our mission is to highlight what it's like living as a fishing family and to give back to the fishing industry. So we donate a portion of our proceeds to the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association and the Maine Lobstermen's Association. 
Nikki, what innovations in this space are you most excited about with all the people you know and the contacts that you make? You know, it's just really impressive to see how fishermen are so innovative with what they're doing these days. And it's unfortunately, some of them are being forced to do this and figure out new ways to support their families. But it's just been so impressive to see the support for the industry as well. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do is create jobs here in Maine with our company and kind of bring back to Maine, you know, what really is important and supporting the seafood industry itself. Well, Nikki, one of our guests today, Kurt, is, uh, well, this is radio, so you can't see him, but apparently um, he's sporting (laughs) one of your products. Go ahead, Kurt. I'm wearing uh, one of your sweatshirts, Nikki, your pants. If you guys made underwear and socks, I'd be wearing those too. But you talk about a really great main company. Uh, Rugged Seas is it. The, the quality products they make, the upcycling, the story, all of it. It's just a really amazing product line. And I've known Taylor and Nikki for a long time, and I'm just so excited about what they're what they're doing and what they'll continue to do. Nikki, Thanks, is- Kurt. You're one of our best billboards. We appreciate the support. <laughs> a walking, talking billboard. Nikki, thanks so much for calling in. Uh, Nikki Strout, one of the owners of the company Rugged Seas. Uh, we're going to go to Erica. Erica's calling from Searsport. Hi, Erica. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah. Um, so I've been listening to the program and hearing about all the new products that are being um, people are working on. And so what I was concerned about has any attention been given to the packaging of all those products and not using plastic? Uh, Gail. Yeah, that's a, a something that folks are paying a lot of attention to. And there's multiple um, places that this is happening, but I'll just mention one um, we're involved with. There's funding to that came to the University of Maine to look at marine debris Um, And what we've done on that is instead of saying, oh, let's get marine debris out of the ocean, instead, like, how do we make plastics that could replace that and not end up in the ocean? And so we've been working with Kurt and others to take chitin and um, from lobsters and also byproducts from kelp to actually produce plastics that could be better used um, in the industry itself. So feeding back into the industry um, because films are used regularly to package these things, we still need that kind of product. So we're trying to use the byproducts to create those products that can de- can then break down um, in the ultimate ocean. Kurt, what do you want to add to that? Just quickly, yeah, our goal is to package lobster and lobster. Uh, in, in this day and age, using uh, plastic uh, and, and styrofoam to package your products is just so wasteful and so short-sighted. So like Gail said, we're working on so many different avenues to create sustainable packaging for our products as we send it around the country and around the world. Erica, thanks for your question. Um, We have an email here. Um, Oh, it didn't have a name, but it says, how about sea cucumbers and those spiky things? I suspect they're talking about urchins. Um, uh, Any any uses, Gail, for uh, sea cucumbers and sea urchins? Any uses other than, you know, your your local sushi bar? <laughs> yeah, well, that's certainly the what people are looking at right now. Um, so we actually just finished a project with um, various folks, but centered out of the Center for Cooperative Aquaculture Research in Franklin, Maine, looking at the potential of aquaculture for sea urchins. 
So at this point, the kind of bottleneck there is around seed. How do you get enough seed to actually have enough sea urchins to raise in an aquaculture setting, for instance, sea ranching. And so right now people are mostly looking at that side of the house, um, not so much on the byproduct side, as far as I know. Um, I don't know, Kurt, if you have any other insight into that. No, there's just a small fishery for both. I remember when I was a kid mm -hmm. growing up, there was a large sea urchin dive fishery along the coast of Maine, and that's kind of petered out over time and had implications for the ecosystem as a whole, but it just speaks to the whole uh, the only constant in this industry is change. And so the key is to be nimble and have a diverse customer base and a diverse array of different products that we produce along the coast of Maine. And really that's been our focus at Sea Maine is diversity of products and diversity of markets is what keeps us going in the long run. We'll go to Alan calling from Winterport. Hi, Alan, go ahead. Hi, yes, I'm so pleased to hear about the small scale things happening and people using byproducts and and the eels and seas and scallops and um, all kinds of interesting culture ideas that, that are small scale and family scale. And it's just such a contrast between the huge things that the governor is uh, in favor of the, the and the other large operations. That, like they, I call them CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations. I went to the University of Illinois and they, uh, and Iowa, Illinois, all those places, you know, forced, encouraged farmers to go into the big chicken, the big hog operations. And they are you know, incredible industrial polluters. Alan, the, your, uh, your, your cell phone connection is kind of coming in and going out, but I do believe you're talking about um, a big scale operations like Nordic Aqua Farms. And, and Gail, is, is that the kind of work that you all are doing as Sea Grant Maine as well? Are you working at, at all different scales? Um, so we've been certainly funding and, and research, funding research around um, re recirculating aquaculture systems. Um, which includes like thinking about not only from the resource itself, but to like, what does that mean to the environment? Also, what is the social like connection to that? So thinking about the people in those communities who might want to be engaged in, in the process, but thinking about aquaculture from, you know, small scale to large scale um, is kind of the perspective and the funding that we um, end up doing around research in this space as well. All right. And, and Kurt, do you have any thoughts about uh, George's comments? Um, not, not really. I'm not as familiar with large scale aquaculture, but I think one of the keys is different, different operations at different sizes and the opportunities for small operations to to grow and scale. I don't think, you know, industrial farming like he was referencing in the Midwest might not be the best fit for the coast of Maine, but different, op different operations of different sizes is is key for growth. I want to ask you a question, and maybe maybe this is for you, Gail. Maybe this is for you, Kurt. Um, almost every show that has to do with the economy we do on Main Calling, one of the biggest challenges is just enough people to work at the, you know, we have a big idea at a company that's growing really quickly, like those we heard from today. Um, I'll go to you, Kurt. Are there enough people out there in Maine to help these companies grow? Uh, that's the biggest challenge about scaling a company here along the Maine coast right now. Um, especially coming out of COVID. Um, as a company, Ready Seafood employs uh, at, at certain times of year over 300 people, and those people are up and down the coast of Maine, and we work with a variety of co-ops and wharves up and down the coast of Maine and finding uh, workers and team members to fill those hours is is really challenging. And so uh, it, it takes in, a, it's another 
avenue for innovation. You have to get creative about where you are finding your talent and your team members and then not just finding them, but retaining them. It's much easier to keep a workforce than it is to find a workforce. And I think one of the things, and we've worked very closely with the community college system to develop programs to show all of the different opportunities in Maine's marine economy. You think fishing and fishing businesses, typically you think boots and boats and docks, but there is so much more to the economic opportunities in the fishing industry here in Maine. It's everything from accounting and financing to sales and purchasing, which involves a lot of travel, uh, to logistics. I mean, you're talking about when uh, with our business, getting lobsters around the world in the cargo holds of commercial airliners. Like there are so many different opportunities for not just jobs, but careers right here in Maine in the fishing industry. And that's been a huge focus of Sea Maine and also of Ready Seafood coming out of COVID is how do we find those team members? And so many of our team members, and one of my favorite things about going into Ready Seafood every single day is so many of our team members are from places around the world that I've never heard of. And I meet people every single day from amazing backgrounds with incredible stories and they grow in our company and have taken on major leadership roles. And it's just really humbling to see what Maine's marine workforce looks like today. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of about our industry, but constant vigilance. It's always, always, always looking for um, new talent and new team members. I guess we're going go to go to, oh, yeah, go ahead. Gail. Oh, I'll just add to that, that one of the places that we work in is workforce development. And one of the things that we think a lot about is how do we get our young folks in Maine to stay in Maine? And so reaching out to, for instance, at the middle school level, how do we get these types of jobs just in the minds of folks or of the students and get them excited about staying in Maine and thinking about the industry and, and entering into those career paths that Kurt just mentioned. So that's another avenue that we think about in this space. Uh, going to David from Yarmouth. Hi, David, go ahead. Hi, I just wanted to thank you for this program. And I, I'm hope what I have to say feeds into what you were just mentioning about workforce development. Um, I'm a kelp farmer. I work with as a member of Maine Family Sea Farm Cooperative, which is a shellfish and kelp co-op down here in Freeport, Yarmouth on the Cousins River. Uh, we're tenants of Sea Meadows, which is a new nonprofit protecting the working waterfront, waterfronts that work. And I'm uh, the new director of BioCitizen Maine, which is an educational program that's partnering with Sea Meadows to get kids on the water, to see what's out in the bay, to work with farmers from um, the cooperative and other partners throughout the industry. Um, I've been growing kelp for about seven years with a lot of support from Sea Grant and MTI and CEI, a lot of groups that are doing all these great things to help funding. But, you know, I'm, I'm late to the, to the game, but I'm, you know, the only regret is I'm not 30 years younger, but there are a lot of young people that we need to get on the water. And as I, any chance I get to talk about this, I say, I don't care what your interest is. There is a place for you in aquaculture and in the fishing community, obviously. Um, so that's, that's all I have to say. David, thanks so much. Yeah. Go ahead, Kurt. 100%. I mean, that just teed, teed this up because getting those opportunities and those careers into folks' heads at a young age is so key. A lot of my time this time of year is spent doing education outreach. And we actually use the research project that we collaborate on looking at baby lobster populations up and down the coast. That was originally a Maine Sea Grant project, thanks to Gail, 
as a lens to show students up and down the coast of Maine how science can be local, relevant, and fun and talk about those job opportunities and those career opportunities in these industries here in Maine. Next Monday, I am at a middle school in Portland. Next Tuesday, I'll be at Cape Elizabeth High School. Like, we speak to anyone who will listen about the opportunities that are right here in Maine in our marine economy. Uh, Kurt, what do you find is um, the biggest hesitation that young people have? I think it's they're unfamiliar with it. Like, like I said earlier, I think people think fishing industry related jobs and they think boots and boats and wharves. And that may not be the most appealing thing to a lot of the workforce, especially these days. But when we emphasize that we have all of those other jobs that any other business throughout the state or throughout the country has as these companies here in Maine, like I said, accounting, finance, logistics, HR, all of those other opportunities exist right here in Maine as part of growing, thriving, innovative businesses. And it's just so important to make sure people recognize that before they make that decision to jump out of state, like Dr. Zagleski was talking about. Dr. Zagleski, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I guess I'll just add one of the things that we've been doing recently is our education program is trying to reach in like inland in the state to middle school students who aren't necessarily on the coast but get them excited about what their opportunities are on in coastal communities. So I think that'll be an exciting um, avenue for folks. All right. Thanks, David. Um, Jack in Blue Hill, we just have a few seconds left in the show. If you could be quick, that'd be great. Sure. It's blowing a gale here, but I, I'm thinking about, I've been on the fence about jumping into the elver fisheries, but I'm going to go for the lottery. It's kind of like the moose lottery. I think, I think March 4th is the last day to sign up. Um, but as a dipper or, or, or you know, having a fight net, there's a lottery, $35 a shot, and it's $2,000 a pound, I think. But maybe the first year you get, they would guarantee you something like four pounds. So it's, okay, it's a Jack, way to yeah, get Jack, in. thanks for expensive. calling. Yeah, the, the Elver lottery coming right up. And uh, how much it is, it depends year to year, right, Kurt? I mean, this is very variable. Absolutely. I sign up for the lottery every year. Jack, thanks for your call. And that will be the last call of the hour. Thank you both for joining us. Dr. Gail Zidleski, Director of the Maine Sea Grant Program at UMaine, and Kurt Brown, Marine Biologist with Ready Seafood, Co-Chair of Sea Maine, and a Commercial Lobsterman. Today's sound engineer was Jane Donahue. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can find our past shows and sign up for our free weekly newsletter at maincalling.org. Tomorrow on the program, we talk with award-winning actor Gabriel Byrne about his career and life journey, including living in Maine. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.